All right, we get to start in Joshua chapter 6, finally getting to the story of Jericho. So let's right away ask, how does this connect with where we left off last week? So if you remember, we were talking about how God was preparing his people for battle. How was he going to prepare them to take the land that he had given to them? And chapter 5 ends pretty specifically where Joshua is given perspective. He is shown that he, this is not all on him as he meets the commander of the Lord's army. And we see him in a humble position. We see him acknowledging uh, his limits in this moment. And we see him in the fear of the Lord. Chapter 6 then opens, and the people of Jericho are afraid. We see these two observations right next to each other. And as we listen and read the details, the, the orders that God was giving them about Jericho, down, down to these details, we start to notice that that was probably really important for Joshua to have that encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. Because if I was Joshua... I don't know if I would have obeyed such absurd commands, such detail, if I hadn't had a situation like that that put me in my place and that humbled me. And so as chapter six begins, the people of Jericho are shut up inside because of the people of Israel. No one's coming in and out, and God lays out the plan for the battle of Jericho. We see the number seven. We see a plan for days one through six, and then a slightly different pl plan for day seven. But here is the question that is going to pull us through our text this week. Here's the question, ladies, that we are bravely going to ask and slowly get to our answer. And that question is, how can we read chapters six, seven, and eight and say, that God is good, right? I think we probably all felt that at different points in the text this week. How is it that we can say God is good when we read stories like this? Stories of war, stories that have puzzled uh, scholars for millennia, stories that some people would say are of genocide, or of racial cleansing, of murder. There was several texts in this passage that were really hard to deal with. And we're not going to shy away from them. But just like always, what we're going to do is we're going to take these difficult stories and we're going to let the Bible teach the Bible. And we're going to be brave and we're going to be okay that we might not have all the answers to any of the questions that might be going on in here or that might come from out there. But I do believe that just like in every other part of the Bible, it's a story of God revealing himself. So let's see what we can find. How can we answer this? How is it that God can be good? So as God lays out the plan for Jericho, we see these details. We probably enjoy talking about them, that the people were going to walk around the city for, for a week the last day, they were going to walk around seven times. We know that seven is a number that stands for perfection and completion. It's God's number. Maybe it took us back to creation even. Maybe it made us think about that the people were going to be getting rest because of this seventh-day obedience. But maybe we even thought to look for the mercy of God in these details. Maybe we asked the question, okay, I know... <laughs> 
by week four of this study that we're supposed to be looking for a merciful king. And so maybe you wrote in your little chart that maybe God commanded seven days of walking around Jericho because maybe, just maybe, some of these people inside the walls would turn to the living God. Could it be that God was that merciful, that that's part of his purpose in this? I think there's lots of reasons of why it was seven days. I think that that would have done a number on the Israelites' faith. That would have really tested their obedience. But I can't help but wonder if it also was for the people of Canaan. And here's why I say that, guys. Because who did we meet a couple weeks ago? The very first Canaanite we met was Rahab. And that was not just a story to glaze over, to gloss over, because she is brought front and center stage of the book of Joshua. And we are supposed to look through the lens of Rahab to help us get through many of these hard stories. Because she's ironic, right? She is a twist in the story in so many ways. And we're going to get to talk more about that tonight. But when we get to these hard or confusing details of God allowing his people to kill all the people in Jericho, we should use Rahab to help us grapple with that. Because what Rahab's sermon to us is, among other things, is that if you turn, even in the last hour, if you turn from your sin to Yahweh, to a holy God, there will be mercy for you. So perhaps, maybe, that is why God, one of the reasons why God had them walk around Jericho for seven days. Right away, that helps us with our big question. Is God good? How can God be good if he's commanding this war? If he's commanding this, what seems like this cleansing of the Canaanites, of the people in Jericho? We don't have to get very far to be like, is, is that mercy? Do I see some mercy in this text. Okay, so we're going to keep moving. What happens is, you know, the people go and they, they do what God says and, and the wall falls down. I can only imagine how hard it would have been to be quiet that whole time, right? It would have been hard enough to obey the weird command to just walk around, especially if I was just biting at the chomp to, to fight. But now I have to be quiet because I promise you guys, if that wouldn't have been one of the commands, I would have had plenty to say. I would have had plenty to yell up at that wall, right? You can imagine the heckling that might have been happening. Maybe there was even heckling coming down from some of the Canaanites, and they were told to stay quiet. There is instruction for us there. I think so often the weapon we want to use if we're trying to win a battle on our own strength is our words. And God tells them to be quiet. When we shut our mouths, when God invites us to be quiet, literally or metaphorically, there's a good chance that we are going to think and obey more. So the people of God are quiet. The trumpets blow on that seventh day, and then they get a let it rip. They get a shout, and the walls fall down. The people go in. They do their part in this tension that we're talking about. They go in and they do their part to defeat the people of Jericho. But we read that Rahab was saved. Not just Rahab, but everyone in her house. Everyone who was under that 
crimson flag of Israel that we talked about two weeks ago, that red cord, that scarlet cord that was hung out her window. Everyone in that house, in the wall, was saved. Okay, but we got to keep moving. We've got a lot to get through. So after Jericho, the next chapter opens up with an important word, but. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Pause for just a second. Okay, guys, what you need to understand with how the story is being told here is at this moment, we, the audience, are being told something that the, the original people in the story didn't know. Okay, so we're getting a heads up. We're getting clued in. Okay, something happened. The people of Israel broke faith. When we see that word, but, what we need to see is that, okay, what you just read about that sounded like awesome, good news, there's actually another little story that's happening at the same time. The people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And we have whiplash and we're sad about it. And we're sitting here on the outside. We're saying, how could you do that? Why would you do that? The dust from the rubble of Jericho had probably not even settled when we read that somebody has disobeyed. Somebody has gone against God's law, God's command here. And so... The story continues, they don't know this, and we go into this tricky story where the spies, these leaders of Israel, they make a plan. You get this sense in the story that it's moving fast, that pretty much Jericho happened and now they've got this plan. Next, let's do the next battle. Let's go to Ai. And you know what? There's not that many people there, so let's not even use all of our warriors. Let's just send a small number of them, send them forward, and we'll just keep accumulating these victories from God. But we read that they go and they do that. It sounds like they don't even get to the city before they start tasting defeat. They are outside the gates when they are defeated in this second battle. And we took some time to look at Joshua's response. Verse 6 says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads so it's a sign of grief, they're mourning. And what did Joshua say to the Lord? He essentially comes to the Lord, and he is a mess, guys. This is Joshua in a very vulnerable day. This is Joshua in a significant moment of doubt. And what he is saying to God is, God, how can this be? In fact, you could say that Joshua is asking the same question that we are asking in this text. He's saying, maybe God isn't good how can God be good if we have just tasted defeat, if people are dead? How can God be good? He is so confused. And he goes to God and he essentially is saying, you've broken your covenant. How can this be? Why would you even bring us here if you're not going to be a God who keeps his promises? And then he says, what will they think of us and what will they think of you. Before we resolve this, I actually think that we have this moment to relate with Joshua. We've been saying over and over again, Joshua is just esteemed in this book. We're supposed to see him as the next Moses. We're supposed to see him in this positive light. And this is maybe the first moment where we're like, wait a minute, 
Was this his fault? Did he mess up? And then we see him in a moment of doubt. And I think that doubt is something that often we encounter. Maybe it doesn't always have the flair and the drama that this scene for Joshua has, but I think we all have our own version of it. Something goes awry in our plans. We experience defeat. We get a no. We get a not yet. Whatever it is, we are in a place of loss or confusion, and what rears its head is doubt. And we say to God, I don't know if I believe that you're good right now. Lord, why would you even start me down this road if you're not going to keep your promises? The confusion for Joshua, our strong leader, is felt on this page. And it slows down our study. This is a very dark day for Joshua. And I think it's an opportunity for us to feel like we can relate with him. Because God does respond to Joshua. And we got a little laugh out of it because it does sound like a parent who's like, I'm ignoring this temper tantrum. Get up. There's an obvious reason why you're miserable, miserable right now. But at the same time, guys, what I see here, aside from the funny response from God, is I see that Joshua, who maybe wasn't a strong enough leader in this last scene, who maybe didn't slow down his leaders when he should have, we don't know exactly what Joshua's mistake was and scholars disagree, but what we do know is that Joshua went to the perfect spot in his doubt. He went to the mercy seat of God. Remember how we talked about that? On top of the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God, was the mercy seat. And it was a place where God would meet with his children. And that instructs us when we are in doubt. Huge theological doubts like, God, are you good? God, are you real? Or maybe smaller daily doubts like, God, are you going to be enough for me in this situation? God, are you going to show up? God, are you ever going to show up for this person that I love? Are you going to heal? Are you going to free? Are you going to lead, God? Where we must go is the mercy seat of God. Hebrews 4 tells us that whenever we are in a time of need, we should draw near to the throne of grace. And then in Isaiah, we read that the kind of God we will find at that mercy seat is a God who will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Ladies, if you feel like a bruised reed, if you feel that kind of weakness, if you feel like a smoldering wick spiritually or emotionally, the good news that we have in the middle of this really intense couple chapters is that God will not break you in that moment and he will not extinguish the little flame, the little life that is left in you. 
because he is a God who is faithful, a God who will faithfully bring forth justice. You are invited with your mess, with your confusion, with your doubt. You are invited near to the mercy seat, just like Joshua was. And so for whatever confusion we have about Joshua in this scene, it's okay to not fully conclude where he was wrong because we see his response was appropriate. He is there and he's understanding that he is going to have to deal with the mess that sin has made. God is going to lay out what has happened. He says, get up, dude. It's pretty simple. Somebody has sinned. Somebody has done exactly what I told them not to do. And until this gets fixed, until these stolen items are removed, I cannot be with you. Now, this is something that we're going to talk about, I think, next week or even the following week. It's this idea of union with God and communion with God. Okay? In the New Testament, it's talked about as union with Christ and communion with Christ. So in the Old Testament, we're going to talk about it with God. So we have been told that these are God's children, and we have marked prepositions over and over again, haven't we? That God is with his children. He is with them. He is with them. They are in covenant, right? The children who were in slavery and who were nomads, they are in covenant. And that's the most important thing for us to understand. They are in this this binding agreement with God. They are his children. Nothing is going to change their identity as God's children. But what we are starting to see in these chapters and we will see in subsequent chapters is that the communion with God is broken. Do you guys see the difference there? They remain God's children. But when it seems like God has left them, when it seems like God is not there, the question is not necessarily where did God go, but where did the children go? Or specifically, what did the children do that broke their closeness with God in that moment? And so when they get defeated at AI, what we are to understand is not that, oh my goodness, everything stops, everything's over, the covenant is null. No, we're supposed to say communion has been broken. God will not be with them in that way until the items of destruction have been removed. What we learn about God in this situation is that the fact that he will not ignore sin shows us that he is good, shows us his mercy. If God swept this under the carpet, it would not be loving. And that is what we are going to keep trying to tease out tonight, guys. We said that this week was about the justice of God. But just because we're talking about the justice of God does not mean that we don't get to talk about his mercy at the exact same time. God's justice and God's goodness are two sides of the same coin. They can coexist. God's, God's hatred for sin and God's grace and mercy can coexist. So again, we're still in this same scene. There's a lot for us to figure out here. But Joshua is going to God in his confusion. And God is saying, it's pretty obvious. It's not me who's broken the covenant like you just implied, Joshua. It is the people who have broken the covenant. Very important difference. Essentially, what God is saying here, Joshua, you're so worried about what people will think. You're so worried about what people are going to think about you guys and, and maybe how you should have just stayed on the other side of the Jordan. You're worried about what people are going to think about me. 
But do you guys realize what God is saying when he comes back at him? Essentially, God's saying, oh, I don't care what people think about me. That's not my top priority. And when I say that, guys, what I mean is God is not like a teenage girl. God is not here trying to get people to vote for him for homecoming king. He's not trying to win votes. So when his people are defeated, he's not going, oh, no. Oh, no, nobody's going to serve me anymore. Nobody's going to worship me. My whole plan is going to go down the drain. No, no, no. God has no needs. He's completely self-existent. And so what God cares about in this moment is not what so-and-so thinks about him in this light. God cares about his holiness. And what insults God's holiness is sin. So God is saying the issue here is the sin. It's not about what everyone and anybody is saying or thinking. What matters is that my holiness, my glory is being diminished right now because there is sin in the camp of Israel. And so once again, we have God showing to be in charge and he lays out a plan for this sin to be dealt with. God who is just, but also merciful, always deals with sin. Big theme of the Bible. So he lays out this plan. And we asked in our, in our homework, why such a long plan? Four rounds of casting the lots, right? So casting the lots, the easiest way for us to think about it is kind of like rolling the dice, okay? This was how God and his sovereignty was going to show who it was that had sinned. And someone in our small group made a really good point. We're talking about not just hundreds of people or even thousands of people, but starting with millions of people. This process was not done in half an hour. This process took all day, more than likely. Why so drawn out? Didn't we ask this question last week? Why all these pauses? Let's get the show on the road, God. Why all these pauses? Wait, didn't we just ask this already even tonight? Why seven days walking around Jericho? Could we look and find the mercy of God in this moment? Could it be that God was giving the sinner in this story a chance to come forward and confess? This would have been an incredibly emotional day for the people of Israel. The confusion, the fear. How many of them had just lost a brother or a husband or a dad in the defeat at Ai? This is an emotionally charged scene. And God is going through this process of drawing forward the person who has committed the sin. Could it be that he was giving him a chance to repent? Ladies, how thick-headed and hard-hearted would you have to be to not come forward on a day like that? But I get it, because that's how I am with my sin. I am so convinced that I can keep my sin hidden. Ladies, I am so often so sure, first of all, that my sin isn't that big a deal, and that if I can just hide it in my home, like Achan did, if I can just hide it just right under the surface of my life, that it's inconsequential. It will not be found out. 
and what we learn from this story as Achan is eventually drawn out by the sovereignty of God and finally confesses his sin when he has no other choice is that our sin will find us out. Achan, although he probably didn't want to, gives us a pretty powerful sermon on sin. He says, he lays out the process of his sin in verse 20. This is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. He saw, he coveted, and he took. Just like Eve saw the fruit, saw that it was good to make one wise, that she wanted it and she took Elsewhere in the Bible, too, when David sees Bathsheba, he sees her, he covets it, and he takes over and over again. This is the process that is laid out. Ladies, here is where we make a fatal flaw, and I might make some of you a little uncomfortable. When we hear about sins of the eyes, we say, oh, that's for the guys, that doesn't matter to me. Or maybe, oh, oh, she's just going to use the shopping example that I just shouldn't shop all the time, right? I shouldn't just look at stuff and then I'm going to covet them and then I'm going to want them. We make a big mistake when we breeze over Aiken's story and we say, oh yeah, that's about coveting. So I shouldn't want my friend's house. No, guys, this pattern is pretty clear in the Bible. And it's not just for men. That our eyes are vulnerable to this whole process of sin. And even, I'm going to go there, sexual sin among women, all of our ages, not just you young ladies. This is important for all of us to hear. Aiken's sermon to us is that our sin not only will be found out, but that our sin will bring destruction. And we had a hard time as we looked at what Achan's sin did to his family. And we probably asked really hard questions. Well, guys, what we learn about sin is that it is much farther reaching than just to the person who commits it. Our sin will take us further than when we want to go and will keep us longer and will cost far more than we ever wanted to pay. And ladies, we must acknowledge that even though we are women, our eyes are so often the gateway for our sin. And so we need to bring into light. We need to take this opportunity that God has given us to confess our sins. Even if we think we are the only person struggling with this, even if it is a sexual sin and we feel like, well, we're a woman inside an American church, we can't bring that into the light. I invite you to fight that lie. Whatever that sin is, that is pulling at your attention, is that, in, that wants to make its way into your home, into your heart, and hide just under the surface. Ladies, it will not stay there. It will steal, and it will kill, and it will destroy. Aiken teaches us that God will deal with sin because he cares about his holiness. So let's not be like him in this way. Let's look and see the mercy of God 
as he gives his children time to confess their sin. And then I can hardly believe it as we move forward to chapter 8. We see God rightly in charge again. God did have a plan at Ai. Perhaps the, the spies and the leaders were just too quick too quick to go right back into battle. Maybe they were wrongly arrogant. Maybe they were just confident because of Jericho, but either way, they were not waiting on God's timing because now here we have God who is rich in mercy, allowing his children to try, try again. And he lays out, once again, a detailed plan of how they will experience victory in the land. We see his mercy as they find victory in AI. And did you pick up on this tiny little detail that they get to take the plunder this time? Are you kidding me? They didn't need that. As a parent, I'm like, no way. I'm not doing that. They're going to run free with that. But our God is rich in mercy and lavishes his goodness on his children. What do we see but mercy in these chapters about God's justice? Okay, so let's turn this towards application, guys, although it has already done a number with that. We took some time to compare Rahab and Achan. And maybe you feel like I'm hitting Rahab over, like I'm, I'm hitting this too hard and too often, but guys, I really do believe that these, there's some main characters in this story, Rahab and Achan being two of them, and the third one will come next week, that are given a disproportional amount of text for the book of Joshua. These characters are held up and they're highlighted. There's a million different lessons that we are supposed to get from them. And so let's hold up Rahab and Achan and compare them like we did in our homework. Scholars have enjoyed doing this. You'll find this in lots of different commentaries, but it starts with simple things, right? Like Rahab is a woman, and Achan is a man. Rahab is a Gentile, while Achan is an Israelite. Okay? We saw that Rahab kept her secret up on the roof, while Achan kept his secret right underground. We saw that Rahab, because of her faith, saved her whole household. Achan, because of his sin, brought destruction on his entire household. There's beautiful contrast here. But it's just crazy writing by the divine author that we see that the woman who is a prostitute and who lies is given the moral high ground, to use a little Jen Wilkin language. She is upheld as the person that we are to emulate, the hooker. She's the one that we're supposed to say, I want to be like her. Because even at the last minute, when it made no sense, she turned to Yahweh. She probably did not know much about him, but what she knew was enough for salvation, and she would figure the rest out later. And we see that knowing faith, like enough faith to save you, does not just leave you on the outskirts of God's family, right? We marched through this progression. She was outside the camp at first, probably just to go through ceremonial cleaning, so that she could obey the law. Then she was brought, two verses later, brought into the camp of Israel and remained there the rest of her life. But it didn't stop there. She was then brought in to the lineage we find in Matthew. We see that she was related to Jesus, which means that she was related to Ruth, Boaz, like all those stories about those awesome, questionable women. And it doesn't stop there. She was brought into the hall of faith. She is upheld as someone that we are to emulate. 
We are to have faith like Rahab. That means that we can even take this analogy of the wall, the wall that the people of Jericho put their trust in that was soon to fall. Rahab, who lived there, was only safe there because of this huge contrast we find between her and Achan. This is my favorite one, and it just came this week through many texts from you guys. We see this difference between two different kinds of hiding. Okay, let's talk about this. Achan. Achan sinned, and Achan hid his sin. Why? Because that's what sin will tell us to do from Genesis 3 on. When we sin, we start hearing on repeat, better hide, better hide, better lie, better lie, cover up, cover up. Sin will always drive us to isolation and to hiding and convinces us that God cannot see. How does that contrast with Rahab? We find Rahab hiding herself in the shadow of the Almighty. We find Rahab hiding herself in the covenant promises of God. As we went to Psalm 9 this week, we saw that Rahab sought refuge in the God who sees all things and knows all things. When sin and shame tell us we better hide, Let's turn away from that. Instead, hear the promises of God that invite us to take refuge in his goodness and in his mercy. It's ironic that the woman who had every reason to hide in shame found security and safety. And the man who was going to be given all of these promises of God died because he hid his sin. And so we are invited to be like Rahab, to jump into the story of God. And whether we have a shameful past or a shameful yesterday or a temper this afternoon, whether we deal with shame all the time or guilt all the time, we must let that shame, that conviction drive us into the shadow of the Almighty, near to God as our fortress. How does this story preach the gospel to us? I see it in a couple different ways. One, I see it in the big story of Joshua pointing us to Jesus. Specifically in this scene where we saw Joshua in a pretty emotional place going before the mercy seat of God. It's almost like if we could squint we would see a scene that would come thousands of years later of the man in which Joshua pointed to, Jesus, emotional, distraught, and in his humanity, possibly even confused as he was on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. So overcome with emotion that he was sweating blood as he asked God, was there any other way for sin to be dealt with? As he cried out to his father, is there 
any other way for the justice of God to be satisfied. We see the one whom Joshua was pointing to ready to take on the problem of mankind's rebellion, ready to take on the very judgment of God, ready to obey, to be strong and courageous, to not turn from it even to the right or to the left, but to obey by going to the cross, ready to take on the full weight of God's wrath towards sin so that you and I would receive mercy. The place where Achan sinned was called Achor. Probably say it wrong. It meant trouble. And there's a small little reference to the Valley of Achor in the book of Hosea, a book of prophecy. And in this one little section in Hosea chapter 2, God is using a metaphor to speak of his plan of redemption. Ladies, he says through his prophet that he will turn the valley of Achor into a door of hope. Do you get what he's saying there? This prophet is preaching to rebellious Israel hundreds of years after taking the land. Hundreds of years. And he is saying, your valley of Achor, you know that place where you first rebelled? That place where you first brought trouble? That place where you first picked up your sin instead of obeying my promises? That place of sin and trouble. I am going to turn into a gateway of hope. I am going to transform your rebellion into a place of new life and a new creation. Ladies, it does not matter how long you have been sinning and in whatever way that you have been sinning. It does not matter how many times you have tried to conquer this sin. Your good news and my hope for tonight is that we would look at that valley of Achor, that place of rebellion, that place of weakness, that place where we believed a lie instead of a covenant promise, and that we would believe that God can redeem it, that God can restore it, and that we would walk away from that and walk through a door of hope because of the work that Jesus would do on the cross. We can be God's children who conquer our sin because of the mercy of God. Our valley of Achor will become a door of hope. So don't hide it anymore, ladies. Don't believe it. Whatever the sin is, don't believe that it can't be brought out into the light because you're in a Christian community. Don't think that your friends or your family are sick of hearing the same confession over and over again. Ladies, bring it out into the light and find freedom. Don't believe that your sin is inconsequential. Maybe you've tuned me out because you just think I'm just talking about these horrible sexual sins or law-breaking sins. No, ladies, I'm talking about our bad attitudes and our bitterness. I'm talking about our loose tongues and our tempers. I'm talking about our judgmental hearts and our lack of grace for people who are different than us. 
All of these sins will bring trouble on us and God hates all of them. And he has promised to deal with our sins and he already has. So we said in our homework that there's very good news for us in the story of Achan. It is a warning, but it is not a threat. The sin that you are struggling with right now does not define you if you are in Christ. And it does not have to nag you the rest of your life. You can be free from it. Why? Because Jesus took the penalty for that. Judgment came. And so now salvation. But you need to believe that. You need to believe that freedom is yours. You need to believe that Jesus has made you for freedom. And we believe it every single day and believe it for the people that you love and for the people that you do life with. And we will live in the land as the children of God, holding on to those promises, walking through doors of hope. Let's pray. Father, there is so much mercy packed deep within the story of a just God. Help us to see it. Help us to confess. Help us to draw near to the throne of grace. Father, we love you. We love you because you're just, and we love you because you're merciful, and we love you because you loved us first. Help us to be free women. Amen.